Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, Focused Compounding. Sitting next to Jeff Can. Jeff, how's it going today? Uh, it's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great for everybody else as well. If this is the first time you're tuning in, make sure you hit the subscribe button both on YouTube and the podcast side of things. Follow me on Twitter at Focus Compound um, and check out all the work that we do at FocusCompounding.com. Uh, use the podcast subscription code. Okay podcast code to get $10 off of the price. And definitely as long as you do stay a member. I haven't so said that in a while. That's the word podcast. That's the word podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Use the podcast code, which is podcast. And there's also something on that uh, in the description. So in today's podcast, we're gonna be talking about the art of capital reallocation. Okay. How Buffett got rich. Mm-hmm. And that's not Jimmy Buffett. That's Warren Buffett. We got all these books up here. You know, what my favorite thing is, is when people talk about Warren Buffett and uh-huh. they spell Warren Buffet. Yes. I, I can't take you seriously if it's just one T, you know? Okay. Uh, it, like, it drives me crazy. And there's a lot of people that do that on Twitter. But it's kind of funny. Um, but this is a new book okay. that you had recently read. The funny part about Jeff is I think on our research but, trip, you ran out of out of books right. to read. Yeah. So you're like, oh, I'm just rereading this book. It's mm-hmm. not this one. Uh, no, no, what no. What's the book actually called? Uh, it's the... Uh, <laughs> uh it's um i'm really bad with titles capital capital allocation the history of um uh a you're losing new england textile mill 1955 to 1985 you know i should have brought the book out because i still have it in my go grab it uh luggage don't worry i'll I'll, I'll hold it i'll hold them down uh no that's all right okay anyways um uh, but it was funny about Jeff was he didn't have any other books to read. So he reread Correct. that book like three times on our trip. Yes, <laughs> I did reread that book like three times. Yeah. Uh, but you said that you really liked it. And there's a lot of books that are similar mm-hmm. to that. I've read a couple ones where they go through almost like a case study, um, right. you know, illustration of every single one of his investments, and especially on the earlier days, a lot of stuff maybe we tend to draw inspiration from. But why did you like that book more than other ones? Whether different stuff talked about that haven't been talked about before yes yeah so it has the most financial detail in the terms of in terms of numbers of any book on buffett that i've read okay so like what uh so for instance it has more detail on national indemnity uh pinkerton's uh which is just a like i guess technically you could call it past investments a very big investment though um and stocks like that there's been some that have fairly big detail on like Washington Post company and companies like that, but very, very little on companies like National Indemnity and um, what we call, you know, Rockford Bank, the um, National Bank of Illinois. I forget, I forget mm-hmm. Illinois National Bank, um, but everyone called it the Rockford Bank. Uh, and so there's a lot more detail in those. The two chapters I thought were really, really good, especially were um, the one on the bank and the one on the insurer, so the one on national indemnity and the one on um, Rockford. Yeah. Okay. Why were they interesting? Because of the degree of financial information that they provided, um, taking from different sources. And so you have detailed information even about things like float, the growth of uh, float, um, the uh, the uh, combined ratio, things like that, even details about loss ratios versus expense ratios and, and a lot more detail than I've ever seen about this company. So it helps you reproduce the actual thinking there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So like, I guess like you could reverse engineer, you know, what, what he was looking at and stuff like that. Yeah. And I'd say it's better than a lot of books in that a lot of books kind of just do that part of it. Uh, whether it's Buffettology or, um, the Warren Buffett way or any of those sorts of things or Warren Buffett portfolio where they kind of say, okay, he bought this. So let's try to figure out through almost like a DCF why he bought it. 
in this case, it is more like what he saw at the time. So what was the PE? What was the price to book? What had been the last 10 years of results? The things that he would really have in hand at the time he was making the decision, not so much like, so he must have figured it was going to grow by X amount. Was the there anything future. that stood out about national indemnity that you took away from it? Um, yes. The thing that stood out to me overall about the book is while the book is called capital allocation, I would say, which I did say in the focus comment daily that I did, um, that what clearly made Buffett very rich in the early days is capital reallocation. There's sort of a story that he got invested in um, not very good businesses, almost on like a liquidation basis, net nets, and then shifted over time into very good businesses. But actually a lot of his best results come from buying into um overcapitalized businesses, poor businesses, and reallocating them into good businesses. And much of the time that we're talking about in that 1950, uh, 1965 to 1985, it starts uh, with the 10 years of Berkshire Hathaway before Buffett came in. Um, that period really shows you that. So it isn't just that he bought things like National Indemnity uh, or um, the Rockford Bank. It's that he reallocated capital away from things like inventory and textiles into things like stocks and bonds and insurance and banking. Um, and there's discussion of float and all that kind of stuff, but it is a reallocation from overcapitalized poor businesses into um, better growing businesses. If they had just put the money continuously back into the same businesses, he'd have bad results. And we talk about that sometimes. Mm -hmm. Basically, net nets and things like that would work out. Land plays, asset plays. If you could take control of them and change their capital allocation, they will work out. I mean, we uh, on our trip, we saw something where I was like, yeah, this. if someone bought this entire company for this market cap, there's no doubt it would work out and work out in a huge way. But I also said, I've got the impression this guy is never going to to allow that to happen, you know? And so it's not sort of an economic reason for being in that business, but it's incredibly, incredibly cheap versus the assets that could be realized. So if you, if someone else was in control of that business, like a Buffett, he would liquidate those things that were in, in that case, poor, like returning land investments over time. And you'll put them into things like stocks and bonds, or he would put them into buying into insurance and banking businesses and things that do actually compound over time. And that's different than just trying to buy something that is um, a compounder, you know, which is what people talk about today. In a sense, buying American Express or something with the inventory you liquidated from Berkshire Hathaway actually provides really high returns because, of course, American Express trades at a premium to book value quite a bit at the time he was looking at it, whereas Berkshire was trading at a pretty big discount usually when he was buying into it. Mm -hmm. And he ran into issues with blue chip stamps too and stuff. Like They're like, well, how do you allocate the capital? How do you decide if it's through Berkshire or through Ber uh, blue chip stamps? <laughs> yeah. And that was like kind of- It became very, very complicated. Yeah, sure. That's a big problem because we were talking about that on the trip, actually. You were like, so at what point was Munger this rich and that rich? And I was like, well, it's kind of complicated because- That's a funny- Hold on. Yeah. I want you to tell your answer because I don't think a lot of people think about him like this. I don't remember exactly what my answer was. Right, well, okay. Tell what you're going to say. Sorry. But anyway, what I was going to say is it's through blue chip, really. And so it's the merger blue chip into Berkshire Hathaway that that happens. So you, the, it's basically with the period where the book ends, capital allocation is sort of when they clear up that sort of stuff and put it all under one umbrella. This is the building of Berkshire in the early days. And a lot of that is through blue chip, which is indirectly owned by Berkshire. Yeah. What I was going to say is you were talking about Munger and you're like, I think he was probably pretty focused on business for how long? 
of his life. I maybe thirty years. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you're like, I don't think he's been that focused on it for a very long no. time. I mean, even when it comes to managing his own money, he let you know he outsourced it to Lilu, yeah. and then with Buffett, I'm sure. I mean, he's still working probably you know reading and thinking mm-hmm. and obviously a sounding board for buffett but and it is true when you do think about it and read like damn right and stuff like that he really wanted to get rich right and i think after that he started to pull back where buffett has been focused for a very long time yeah exactly and so um yeah the there's about three decades in there i would say where he's very very focused and that's the actually the period that we're talking about here and he contributed a very big way munger in in a lot of this capital allocation stuff about that um in the period where you're talking about some of the california businesses um sees there's also an snl that they bought out there some stuff like that um and, and, and but there's also details in this about like the Tollbridge company, which I had never I had read some articles. So I have at times been able to find articles going back uh, on some of these companies, but not the financials. So I never read the financials on a lot of these companies. And that's very uh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are a few different things that are interesting, too. Also, they the companies in general, I think, had were more expensive than most people would guess. Um, that I think is something that stands out even in his earliest days. These were not incredibly cheap things. Even something like Berkshire Hathaway, I've seen much cheaper net nets than Berkshire Hathaway was when he bought into it. And I think there are reasons for why he bought into it that aren't entirely have to do with the, um, price. I mean, the company was shutting down underperforming mills and buying back stock and also paying a dividend. So it was sort of liquidating over time. And not that it was going to do that forever, but that's unusual for NetNet. I mean, I have some notes in that book, which is why I should have taken it out. But uh, some of it is like how incredibly unusual it is for a company, not just a NetNet, any company, even a very, very good company to be heavily buying back its own stock as Berkshire was. I, I don't see that. Pre-Buffett? Yeah, pre-Buffett. I think that's entirely what attracted him to it. And I think he kind of admit that. Um, he, because if it goes up, you can sell into the buyback. Mm-hmm. If it doesn't go up, they'll buy more and more shares and the, 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 um, book value will go up over time. And they were getting out of the worst parts of it. But also from some things I read in it, the textile business was even worse than I thought in that I don't think Berkshire was a poorly managed business. And I think that's something that's hard for people to believe, but I think it was just such a terrible industry to be in at that time. This was a New England textile mill at a time when already textile mills had moved south in the US for cheaper labor. And then there was competition now, much, much cheaper competition from Asia where Japan was competing the way that like places like the um, China and India and, and Vietnam and stuff have competed later in things with the the US in decades that people are more familiar with in the last 20 years or so. Um, so Japan was a very tough competitor there. And already it wasn't even the best place to have a mill in the US. So it was just poorly situated, high labor costs, um, and in a commodity business. So it was not, it was poorly positioned. Yeah. What's your favorite investment that he's made? I guess in, in like during that time frame. Um, I mean, the one that I think kind of worked, paid off the best in the long run or whatever was C's. Mm-hmm. Um, however, in terms of reading about them, I mean, I think that the it's in, I forget the name of the company. It was a Detroit International Bridge Company or something like that. It's the Ambassador Bridge. Um, I thought that was a very interesting thing to read about. I hadn't read much about that one. And I also had read like nothing about Pinkerton's. 
So, I mean, I knew about the company, but I knew nothing about Buffett's investment, even though I've seen that he had the investment. Mm-hmm. And that was just a stock investment in a sense. So, so that was one of the best. So you about that company. Right. So what did they It do? was a very big investment, too. Uh, Pinkerton's historically provided private eye services. By this point, they were security services of all sorts. There are other companies today that... Um, there's three or four of them around the world and one of them owns Pinkerton's. Um, they're not us based, but they often own us companies that do the same thing. So they provide security guards, for instance, when you see security guards anywhere, if you're building as a security guards, probably provided by one of those companies, um, things like that. And, uh, they had a very storied history, obviously, um, positive and negative. Um, they, you know, in the 1800s and on, they provided security for, uh, Abraham Lincoln, they had um, been involved in breaking up strikes. Uh, they'd been used for a lot of things like that. And a few people that worked for them went on to write um, private eye novels. So that kind of gave them a, a history. So um, it was a very well-known name and I knew what they did. But at that point, I didn't have a good idea of the actual business and how predictable it was. And that was fascinating. It was during the period of like 72 to 74, 73 to 74, where the market plunged a huge amount. And it was kind of a fascinating one because the business barely budged. Um, It just did not change like at all. Uh, As you could imagine, demand for security guards and stuff doesn't change a lot, um, depending on credit conditions or the market falling or even a recession. And so it had just the business results just you can barely tell that anything happened and yet the stock from top to bottom probably fell four fifths or something insane like that yeah it went from being a pretty pricey stock to being really undervalued and they bought a ton of it um they uh buffett and munger i mean berkshire hathaway yeah and um yeah that one was a very very interesting one uh, in terms of the write-ups of ones that I'd never seen before, I would say the three that were most interesting to me in that book, uh, Capital Allocation, were the degree of detail on National Indemnity and on the Rockford Bank. But those are stories I knew well. I just didn't have the exact financials for some things, like the regulatory financials, mm-hmm. right? So he had access to that. And th- so like things like the exact combined ratios and stuff. And then Pinkerton's, I think, probably. I knew a little bit more about the toll bridge than some people, I think. What did Buffett see in the Rockford Bank? So it's an interesting bank. It's different than the kind of banks that we invest in normally. Illinois had a law at the time that you couldn't open branches for banks. There were no bank branches allowed. Your HQ had to be your only bank. If you wanted to um, set up a new bank, then you had to completely uh, raise capital for a totally different organization. So each bank was one branch. And that had a major effect because it it meant that they had huge amounts of money in in one bank. Adjusted for inflation, which he does in the book, it's more than any bank that I'm aware of today. Uh, There might be a bank or two that do like cross-border stuff from the U.S. and Mexico I've seen that might have that much per branch. But that's not really reliable funding the same way. So this was just a pretty plain vanilla bank that way. Very, very low loan losses. Um, Somewhat higher cost deposits than what we look at, but very, very cheaply run you could tell incredibly cheaply run and he goes into some of the details about how cheap it got in terms of the economies of scale um which is things we talk about all the time i don't know if other people talk about them all the time but when we talk about frost or when we talk about whatever people know that i like banks that have huge amounts of deposits per branch because i think that much larger than people realize the um economies of scale 
in the banking industry have to do with stuff like occupancy cost and stuff like that, uh, which is at the branch level most useful. Uh, the truth is that multi-billion dollar banks that have the same deposits per branch across, you know, um, as smaller banks don't pay a lot less in rent as a percent of deposits and things like that. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the history of a bunch of banks, I give the example of Frost, but Frost is tons and tons of like their returns in large part if you look at what they were 30 years ago is due to having a lot lower rent and stuff like that versus their deposits and that was the same case with this bank so i think that's very important part of it in understanding banking and stuff and um i thought his write-ups of the um the banking thing and the insurance thing were really really good in understanding the value of float but also understanding how a bank works that way so um yeah, I think that's the, those are r- tremendously important. They're the kind of thing that Buffett would understand. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talk a little bit about that, but when we just say like economies of scale or something, in any industry, there are economies of scale at different points that they kick in and that they're not that useful after certain points too. So like in banking, there are huge economies of scale between a tiny, tiny one location bank and a huge one location bank. There are economies of scale as you get bigger in certain other parts of the business, but they're pretty dramatic at that level. And so, and this was a very, very cost conscious culture. And we knew that from what Buffett said about the manager and stuff in, at that bank. Which is something that we like about banks. Yeah. Right? And he was if the we founder. To, if we were to invest in a bank, yeah. that's something that we would look for. Yeah. And he was the founder and kept things very, very cheap. Banking is interesting that way in that um, insurance to some extent, but banking even more. Um, your returns are less due to competitive pressure than you might think and more due to um, your own cost consciousness. So if you're in a strong enough position, by lowering your rates a little bit, you're not necessarily going to be able to take a lot of business from your competitor, but you will be in a position where you can make a lot of money. And at a lot of banks, what happens is when you're in that position, you get lazy about your internal expenses and things. You pay people more than they necessarily need to be. You pay more in rent than they need to be. There's tons of inefficiencies and things which were created over time by the fact you were so successful. I see that a lot with monopolies, right? So I've seen a ton of monopolies. There's very few monopolies I've ever seen where they couldn't be making a lot more money than they are eventually it goes to paying a lot of people on the inside. Mm-hmm. And so he had a approach to the Rockford Bank, which was completely, he ran it as if it was as tough a business as the business that Walmart and Dollar General are in and stuff. Like it's easy to be very cost conscious in those um, businesses because in the early days, if you weren't, you'd be out of business. But in banking, you can be kind of sloppy and still make enough money to stay in business. Mm-hmm. What do you think 30-year-old Buffett would be doing in 2020? I don't know. Uh, it's hard to say. I mean, I, I think he'd be f- looking more overseas. I think small things. And I do still think capital reallocation would have a really big appeal to him. That is his whole. Is it harder though nowadays because you have other things like poison pills and different yeah. share classes and yes. stuff like that as a barrier? Yeah. So the, compared to its very early career, SEC notification would happen very quickly. Um, there would be poison pills and multiple classes of stock but he bought into washington post when there are multiple classes of stock and um things like that there'd also be quicker people um being aware of you what you're doing uh copying you stuff like that so it would be harder in some respects i think um i I think that would probably be the things that make it more difficult for him uh if he was doing it today yeah wouldn't it be interesting if he just Step down from Berkshire at some point and then said, all right, I have a million dollars. I'm going to see what I can do. 
and just was yeah like, made it i mean his last thing you know? I, I think he kind he of gave the did. middle finger to everybody that says <laughs> he lost his edge and everything i think he kind of did that once personally privately from what we can tell from reading about things he seems to have gotten a bunch of money from someplace that, i mean he grew a bunch of money from someplace that's unaccounted for so it must have happened um but yeah that would be interesting i know people always ask about that would he do the th- things that he does now um i think some of them he would do the same things that we're seeing back then some have changed uh and so yeah like net nets and things like it's hard to find a net net as good as berkshire was when he bought into it and he talks about it being a mistake but it's hard to see one doing the kind of capital allocation that that company was doing and as sort of financially solid as it was it had been losing money for a long time it had a very poor competitive position but most net nets and things people bring to me do not look anywhere near as good as that however there are some like berkshire or even better in other countries so I don't know if that means he would be buying in Korea and Japan and things like that. And I'm sure he would do all the things necessary to try to do that. He's not going to be stopped by the fact that it's like a little more difficult. There's more hurdles to get over and to set things up. Yeah. Do you think he set out to reallocate the capital in Berkshire situation? Yeah. A lot of times people say, well, they were forced into activism because they're like, well, we got to protect our investment at this this point. And, you know, oh, no, he was doing the same and- thing with every company. So he was doing the same thing throughout the partnership. If you watch, he would slowly buy a stock up over time. Mm-hmm. If the stock kept falling and stuff, he would just buy more and more of it. He would get a low average cost. Now, he was willing to buy it a lot higher. It, that's the other thing that surprised people. He often his average price in a net net could often be double what the first purchase was made at. So he would keep buying once he was into the business, but um, he, he reallocated capital to other companies before he had already done it at places like um, Dempster mill and stuff, even on a temporary basis. So um, that wasn't unusual for him. Also people forget Ben Graham did control situations. So he was already familiar with things like, and, 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 um, uh, Jerry Newman and stuff was very heavily involved in that. So he already knew from working at um, Graham Newman that uh, that you could do that and stuff. Like there was a company, uh, Redding, it had been like Redding Coal and all. it was, but anyway, it, there. that's one example. It's not just Geico. Geico is not the only company that Graham had significant control or whatever in or influence on. Graham was also one of the first real activist if you want to call it that i mean it wasn't just northern pipeline he did it in other things too so the playbook of slowly buying up a stock over time and if you get a chance to sell out at a high price or whatever sell out or sell out to a major shareholder or someone who wants to take over the company or whatever but if nothing happens and the stock just keeps languishing there eventually you buy up enough stock to change things that was already an established buffett thing i think mm-hmm. um yeah he bought much longer than you'd think in those sorts of things over time so he even talks about them in partnership letters he's like we don't start off seeking control of a company. A control position develops because the stock stays too low for too long. Um, and that's what happened. So I know I never thought that he intended to take over Berkshire just to run it the same way or something. Did he intend to sell in that buyback? Yeah. Yes, he, he did. And he got mad about it. Yeah. But yes, absolutely. He definitely intended to do that. Um, he, I think he bought into Berkshire because it was buying back stock and stuff. And I think he wanted to sell out in one of those buybacks. I think there's no doubt about that. And then he decided not to. Cool. Well, I will link to the book and the tweet. 
hopefully okay. I remember that, but it'll definitely be down in the description as well. So make sure you check that out. I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with Jeff and I on the Focus Compounding Podcast. Make sure you hit the subscribe button both on uh, YouTube and the podcast side of things. Thank you so much to everybody for the support and we will see you in the next podcast.